Listen, I have to sit down one more week. I promise this is going to be it. So awkward to sit down. But uh, hopefully my back is getting better. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Matthew 26. Is this a Father's Day sermon? Every sermon I preach is a Father's Day sermon. It's a call to obedience and worship for every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room. So we're going to... I promise you we're not going to cover two chapters like we did last week. Um, I want to spend a little time here at the beginning of chapter 26. And really, I want to start our conversation this morning uh, with this question. If you had to define or describe your worship of Jesus with one word, what would that word be? And don't say it out loud because I want you to be honest. I I want you, um, whether it's a, a great description or a horrible description, I want it to be Genuine. I want it to be authentic. I want it to be yours. And I don't need to, you don't need to say it out loud, but what one word best describes your worship to your King Jesus? I'm gonna, I want us to let that question marinate for a while as we walk through this passage of Scripture together. But in Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, here's what Matthew says. When Jesus had finished saying all of these things. What things? What things had he just finished saying? Well, in, we looked at him last week in chapters 24 and 25. We, we looked last week, Jesus shared with his disciples not only signs of the end of the time, but he shared what his followers are to be doing as they wait for the end of time, his second coming. And the big takeaway last week was that Jesus does not empower us and he does not commission us to study the signs. There's nothing wrong with studying the signs. If you want to have that big old board at home with all of the graphs, um, that's fine. But Jesus makes it very clear in chapters 24 and 25 that we are not empowered nor commissioned to study the signs. In fact, we are empowered and commissioned to serve as the hands and feet until the end of time. That's what we are empowered and commissioned to do. So when Jesus had finished saying all of those things... He said to his disciples in verse 2, As you know, Passover begins in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So for over a year now, almost a year and a half, we have walked with Jesus through his life and ministry from Matthew's account, Matthew's letter. We have listened to his sermons, Sermon on the Mount. We We have listened to his parables one after another. We have watched him heal the sick. We've watched him raise the dead. We've watched him overcome the devil and cast out demons. We have seen him multiply bread, and we have seen him calm storms. We've seen him both call out and invite in the sinner. Passover is now two days away, and the disciples are very aware of that. And Jesus is still trying to prepare them. He's still trying to prepare his followers for what's coming next Because the cross, as unprepared as maybe you can be for that, it was always the purpose for Jesus coming. Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. Now, Matthew, from verse 2 to verse 3, he transports us to a totally different scene in this unfolding story. Look at verse 3. He says this, at the same time, so at the same time that Jesus is doing this with the disciples, The leading priests and the elders were meeting in the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, plotting how to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. That was always the fear. 
They would have already captured Jesus if it wasn't for Jesus' audience. And so we see spiritual warfare on full display here as the devil has influenced mere men to hate Jesus to the point of plotting his death. He came to his own people, but his own people did not recognize him, John said, and his own people rejected him. Next, Matthew transports us to another scene. However, not only is this a different setting, it's a different time. Matthew seems to bring up an event that happened just a few days earlier than what we're currently going through here in chapter 26. Why did he decide to share it right here in this moment? I I don't know. He doesn't tell us other than my assumption would be um, it fits in the context as it reveals the real struggle going on in the hearts of the people around Jesus. There's a real struggle going on. There's real warfare going on. As Jesus gets closer to the cross, it's getting darker in some hearts. Hope's dying. There's a real struggle. As some are scheming his death, others are trying to prepare for his death, whether that's emotionally or mentally or physically, even as we're going to see in just a moment. But the reality is, and there's a screen for this, Jeff, the reality is the person of Jesus demands a response from every human heart. Every beating heart on this planet either recognizes or ignores the work and person of Jesus. We either believe him or we mock him. We either receive him or we reject him. None of us get to remain neutral with Jesus. We are either pursuing him or we are pushing him away. So Matthew takes us back a few days to the specific event starting in verse 6. Meanwhile, he says, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And the assumption that we can draw here is that Simon was probably healed by Jesus. Jesus was known throughout the book of Matthew of healing lepers, right? A man with leprosy did not get to enjoy the small blessings like having people over to the house for a dinner party. A leper was deemed unclean and commanded by law to quarantine from everyone, including his family. Leprosy was a disease that would immediately steal away every relationship you have and then slowly kill you by rotting away your flesh from the inside out. And yet, here is Simon, who previously had leprosy, now healed and sitting at the table with what we can presume is his healer. If anyone in the room had reason to worship at the feet of Jesus, it was Simon. He had lost everything, and Jesus restored it. And yet another person steps into the spotlight of this story in verse 7. And while he was eating, while Jesus was eating with Simon and others, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and she poured it over his head. John's gospel reveals this woman was, in fact, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. John also reveals that Lazarus was at the table. He was at the dinner party, too. He was also at the table. And so we're starting to get the picture that this table was full of people who had quite a story to tell of how Jesus had radically changed their life. I mean, how can you top a story of being diagnosed with leprosy and losing everything only to be healed? How do you top that? Oh, I don't know. How about... You died, and four days later, Jesus brought you out of the grave alive. That probably tops it. And that's the stories going around this table as they're having this meal. I bet this wasn't a boring 
dinner party. Simon, the ex-leper, Lazarus, the ex-dead man, I don't know. And yet it's his sister Mary that makes the story. Because it says that she takes this, this jar of expensive perfume. How expensive? Again, John fills in details where Matthew is pretty vague, but John tells us that this was a 12-ounce jar of nard oil, an oil that was extracted only from India. So the perfume was transported from another continent, which would have made it expensive within itself because they didn't have Amazon Prime in those days. But most of the commentaries seem to agree that a 12-ounce bottle of nard would be the equivalent of about $10,000 today. It would have been about a year's salary in biblical times. And Matthew says that Mary took the entire bottle and poured it on Jesus. John also records that the story, again, I thought this was beautiful. Matthew doesn't share it, but he, he says that um, as she poured some on his feet and she wiped it with her hair, and it says the house was filled with the fragrance. I think that's beautiful. Because this was a fragrance from a perfume often used in preparation to bury the dead. So as this fragrance is filling the room, it's reminding the audience that there's a death and there's a burial approaching. Mary already, by the way, had a reputation um, of being one that was mesmerized in the presence of the Lord. Because there was this other dinner party. You remember this story in in Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 38. Let's just look at it. It says, as Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to every word he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister gets to sit here while I do all the work? Tell her to come help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over these details. Hello. And I I just wanted to preach that, but we're not in Luke right now. Like, oh, that's me. That's me. Sometimes I get so distracted by the details. Here's what Jesus says. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary's discovered it. And it will not be taken from her. So Martha was distracted in the details of the party while Mary delighted in the presence of her Lord. And Jesus said, this will not be taken from her. And here she is again in the book of Matthew at another dinner party. And this time she pours out a year's worth of wages and perfume over the head and feet of Jesus It's just one verse in this text, but we cannot miss the significance of this moment because this was an act of worship for Mary. And the word we could use for her worship would be extravagant. Are you kidding me? $10,000, a year's worth of salary poured out on her Lord. And the beauty of Mary's worship is that Jesus was at the core. He was at the center, that Mary's worship was truly Jesus-centered worship. She didn't care who else was sitting at the table. She didn't care what others might think about her that were sitting at the table. She was consumed and laser-focused on the presence and worship of her Lord. She didn't get consumed in the details. She was consumed by Jesus. Mary worshiped Jesus with everything she had Because he was everything she needed. 
If we are struggling to worship Jesus with all we have, it's because we don't really believe he is all we need. We can sing it, and we can preach it until we're blue in the face, but our behavior reveals what we truly believe in our hearts. Our acts of worship confirm our attitude towards Christ. Mary, listen, there's no doubt about this. Mary loved Jesus. Her actions here in this moment proved that she loved Jesus. And the disciples, verse 8, were indignant when they saw this. What a waste. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And so instead of being astonished at Mary's worship, those closest to Jesus was angry at her worship. Again, John gives us a greater detail of just how something like this could happen. In John chapter 12, verse 4, it says this, but Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And we say, how noble of Judas. This is the kind of guy we want in our leadership at church, Right? The guy that is always pointing us back to what really matters. Serving the poor. Because serving the poor is noble. It is, by the way, it's our obligation as Christians. If only everybody was, could be as spiritual as Judas. Maybe we would be better off. Or perhaps <laughs> the condition that we are in as a church today is because we have too much of Judas in us. As we speak, motives matter. Motives matter. And, and, and here's Judas's motive, because in the very next verse it says this. Not that Judas cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. So Ju Judas's motives are revealed here. He wasn't thinking about the poor. He was thinking about himself. In fact, just a few verses down, it says this, verse 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, how much will you pay me to be betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Isn't it ironic that Judas is offered the same amount of money as it costs to pay for a slave under the law? And he takes it. Because to Judas, Jesus wasn't worth anything more than a slave. You see, here, here's the truth, church. We can't sing our way to worshiping Jesus. Because we will naturally worship what we find most valuable. There's not a workshop workshop that can teach us how to value Jesus. Only the Spirit's work on our hearts will reveal him as our most precious and valuable treasure. But notice, I want us to notice this about Matthew's account of the story. He doesn't say Judas 
was indignant. Matthew says the disciples were indignant. So it's not really part of the sermon, but it is because there's, I think there's an important lesson and an application for us here. And here it is. Be careful whose voice you invite to speak into your life because voices are influential. One voice can do so much damage in the church. Voices are driven by motives, and motives move us. That's why um, often we quote to our teens. Uh, I did a whole sermon on this, and we try to reference it from time to time, but my favorite proverb is Proverbs 13, verse 20, when the wisest man that ever lived said this, walk with the wise and become wise. Associate, associate with fools. And notice it doesn't say, and you will become a fool. It says you associate with fools and you get into trouble because the trouble of fools finds you. That's what's happening here with the disciples. They were walking with a fool, even though they didn't know it in the moment. And by the way, by the way neither do we sometimes. We walk with fools. But the disciples were influenced by Judas and was just repeating his words. They were angry at Mary for worshiping Jesus because she was wasting perfume on him instead of selling the perfume and giving the money to Judas. I mean the poor. Everybody in the room was buying in except for Mary and Jesus. And, and who knows if Mary was even paying attention to the chatter. Perhaps she was so caught up in the moment of worshiping Jesus, maybe she missed the whole conversation. Maybe she's so distracted by the Lord that she's missing what's going on around her. There, there's another sermon for another day. But Jesus is also aware of Judas and his heart, so he speaks up in verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus was not taking away from the poor. He just spent the last half of chapter 25 sharing with us how to serve the poor. Jesus just knew they would always have the poor among them to serve. But he was soon going away. Listen, instead of criticizing Mary, the disciples should have been participating with Mary because there's only days left of them getting to worship the Messiah in person. And they missed it because they listened to a voice. And they decided to criticize instead of worship. Jesus continues, verse 12, she has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. Again, just another moment pointing to what's about to happen. Jesus. Verse 13, our last verse for the day. I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. And here we are, June 18th, 2023, remembering and discussing just as Jesus said we we don't know a whole bunch about Mary, other than she apparently lived in Bethany. We know that she was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, but because Jesus said everywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, they will know Mary's story. We know today, without a doubt, that Mary was an extravagant worshiper of Jesus. Church, what else could, be, what else could we better be known 
among our family and our friends, believers and unbelievers than that. May those who know us best testify after we are long gone that we were extravagant worshipers of Jesus. Men, fathers, what better testimony could we leave our kids than their description of us being, well, he didn't always get it right, but he was a worshiper of Jesus. Man, did he love Jesus. I believe in this text, worship really is the theme because we see the extravagant worship of Mary. We see the lack of true worship from Judas. We see the disciples' opportunity for worship being negatively influenced away. So I want to go back to where we started a few minutes ago. What, what, what was your word? What was your word that best describes your worship? And, and maybe the more important question is this. What, what would you or I, what, what would we need to do to change that word? What would need to happen in our lives to get to the place that the description would be extravagant, passionate, sold out? I think, that it's, I think it's really as simple as a two-step process, by the way. Uh, only two necessary steps. Uh, first step is this, uh, admitting that we are not already extravagantly worshiping Jesus. And if that's you, if that was your word this morning, good. And don't lose that. But if you're like, yeah, maybe my word was a little bit more on the other end. I, maybe it's shallow or inconsistent or whatever word. I think the first step in becoming extravagant worshipers of Jesus is we have to admit, confess that we're not. Earlier, we said that Mary worshiped Jesus with everything she had because Jesus was everything she needed. And the question we have to ask is, is Jesus everything we need? Is, that, is Jesus everything we need? Really, if Jesus took everything away from us, would he alone still be enough for us? If he took everything away from us, would we still be here this morning going, whatever it takes, Lord? Would we still be, hallelujah, oh, praise my soul? We won't want Jesus above everything else until we believe that he is the greatest treasure in our lives. And, it's, and if that's not where some of us are, and can we just be honest? It's not. It's not where some of us are. Some of us is me. <laughs> if, if we are willing to take step one in admitting we are not where we want to be in our surrender of worship to Jesus, then we can move on. If we have admitted that Christ is not our greatest treasure some days of our life, we do pursue other things above him. We do have idolatry in our lives that, that competes with our allegiance to Christ. If we're there, if we have acknowledged that and we have confessed that, then we can move on to step two. And step two is this, pray for God to change the priorities of your heart. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us that reveals the value of Christ to us. We can't work that up on our own. I wish we could. I wish there was a three-point sermon. I could say, follow these three steps, and you're going to be extravagant. No, it's simple. Confess and seek God's help. 
Confess, God, I'm not where I need to be. God, you're going to have to get me there. I read in our one-year reading, we've been reading a lot of Psalms over the past couple months, and uh, there was one day, it's, it's probably been almost, not a month ago, um, the only reading, we only had one chapter for the day, and everybody loves it when there's just one chapter. The problem is it was Psalm 119, and, uh, which is the longest chapter of the Bible. There's a lot of reading. But anytime I read the, the book of Psalms, like, there is some guilt. Like, I, just hear this. Psalm 42.1. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Psalm 63.1, oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 119, in relation to his word, oh, verse 97, oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. 103, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. If you don't like honey, they are sweeter than honey butter on a Texas Roadhouse roll. (laughs) Maybe that relates a little better to you. And can we just be honest? Those rolls are really good. One twenty-seven. Truly, I love your commands more than gold. The finest gold. One thirty-one. I pant with expectation, longing for your. Do you ever just read those verses and think, I want to feel that way. I want to yearn. I don't even know what that word means. I want to yearn. I want to long. I want to wake up and say, I can't even start my day without being in the presence of my Lord. Can I just be honest? There's days I'm six hours into my day. I'm like, oh, I should probably pray. Just read those and why don't I feel that way? Why? I want to delight in the word like the psalmist delighted in the word. But again, we can't work that kind of passion up in our, in our own lives, within ourselves. We must ask God to do, to do the work in our hearts. Father, I don't yearn. I don't long for you like I should, but I want to. Lord, I'm struggling to pour out all of my worship on you, but I want to. God, I don't want to be content with where I'm in, where I am, so help me. God, I can't fix myself, so you change me. Father, draw me closer to you and loosen my grip on the lesser things that I hold so tightly to. 
those treasures that are lesser, that some days I worship greater than my Lord. May the cry of our hearts be the lyrics of the old song that says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. The key to Mary's worship of Jesus was her acknowledgement of who he was. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is our Savior. He came as God in flesh, who came to his own, who was rejected by his own, and yet he freely gave up his life for his own. Jesus will never be our treasure without acknowledging who he is and what he has already done on our behalf. So today, we're going to finish, we're going to conclude by again gathering at the Lord's table, taking communion, remembering what Jesus has done for us, and asking him to help us desire him above everything else. It's okay for you to confess that this morning. It's okay for you to say, I'm not okay with my worship. I'm not where I need to be. In fact, I don't even want to be, I didn't even want to be here today. We, we sang all those songs. I didn't feel a thing. If that's where you are, it's okay. Confess it. No judgment here. Because your leader has the same struggles. This is where we get in trouble. We can't stay where we're at. And we can't get there on our own, so we must seek the Lord for his help. It's like the prayer of the centurion soldier, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I worship you, but I need you to help me in all of the areas that I'm struggling to pour out lavishly. My worship, my extravagant worship, on you.